What's up, MLB Morning Coffee listeners? We have our first sponsor. Please welcome to the show, Sit Stay Paul. Is there a better feeling than walking through the door and seeing your dog so excited to see you? There really is nothing better than a happy, healthy dog. Sit Stay Paul, Boston-based dog treat company, focused on all natural, healthy ingredients, is dedicated to helping dogs live happier, healthier lives. At Sit Stay Paw, they treat dogs as part of the family and understand you do too. That's why they use the highest quality all-natural ingredients in each dog treat. Each recipe has been developed along board-certified veterinary nutritionists and is packed with the flavors your dog loves and the nutrition they need. Stocking stuffer ideas? Do your friends have dogs? Sit Stay Paw's Blueberry Pancake Chewies are made with real blueberries full of antioxidants, fiber, and vitamin C and K the perfect stocking stuffer dip for your friendly pooch. Their carob chip chewies are a natural sweet treat your dog will love, full of vitamins A, B, D, calcium, iron, magnesium, everything your dog needs. For the next four weeks, listeners can go to sitstaypaw.com. That's www.sitstaypaw.com. And on Facebook and Instagram, at sitstaypaw. And use code MLBCOFFEE. That's right, MLBCOFFEE. For 10% off your first order. Take a pic, throw it on the gram, get your dog on the Sit Stay Paw Instagram. Sit Stay Paw, go get your dog a treat. Now, on with the show. Hey, Happy New Year to you and yours here on MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. We are brought to you by Sit Stay Paw. Go to sitstaypaw.com, enter promo code MLBCOFFEE for 10% off of your first order. Again, that's MLBCOFFEE for 10% off of your first order. Well, there's not really a whole lot of big news to talk about. The last time we spoke with you was right after the U Darvish and Blake Snell trades. There's a couple of free agent signings to talk about. So let's get into it first with the Tigers signing of outfielder Robbie Grossman. Robbie Grossman signed a two-year, $10 million contract with the Detroit Tigers on Tuesday. Grossman in 2020 hit 241 with eight homers and 23 runs batted in. He had a 344 on base percentage and in the year Prior, he played in 138 games, hitting 240 with a 334 on base, six homers, and 38 RBI. So by all accounts, his power numbers per scale were the best of his career. This will be the fourth team for Robbie Grossman, and he is what he is, an above-average defensive left fielder that at his best is going to hit 250. That's what Robbie Grossman is at this point. When he signed with Oakland after the 2018 season, he had been coming off a 273 average campaign with the Minnesota Twins, where he played in 129 games in 2018. The two best years of his career by far were with Minnesota in 2017 and 2018, although he had his best power year in 2016, where he had 11 homers in just 99 games. Robbie Grossman, I think, is a deal at $5 million a year. Moreover, though, it gives you an idea about what George Springer is going to end up getting if Robbie Grossman ends up getting $5 million a year. 
I don't think Robbie Grossman is somebody that you put a lot of money into because he's not a long-term investment. He's a 31-year-old journeyman outfielder. But somebody was willing to give Robbie Grossman a two-year contract worth $10 million. That, to me, says two things. Number one, you're going to see deals very similar to this in size, meaning years, and scale, meaning dollars. And number two, I think that it's going to be a grand waiting game to see whoever gives in first when it comes to some of the bigger free agents in this free agency class. Whether that be Trevor Bauer or George Springer, you're starting to see a little bit of a trend. Former Cincinnati Reds catcher Kurt Casale signed a one-year deal with the San Francisco Giants on Monday. Casale is more than likely going to be the backup to Buster Posey for the 2021 season. Originally drafted by the Detroit Tigers, Casale has played in the big leagues with the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cincinnati Reds. Last year in 31 games, Casale hit 224, but he had a 336 on on-base percentage, six home runs, eight RBI. 2019 was probably his best season in Cincinnati, playing 84 games, hitting 251 with a 331 on base, eight homers, and 32 RBI. Here is why the Giants made this move. Number one, they wanted a better backup catcher than Chadwick Tromp. No offense to Chadwick Tromp, but they wanted a better backup catcher, so they got that. Number two, Buster Posey is the clear-cut starter for the Giants at catcher in 2021. And why you bring in somebody like a Kurt Casale means that Joey Bart is going to get the majority of his at-bats at AAA Sacramento. There's always been a theory between letting a guy come up and having him be a backup as opposed to having him stay down and be a full-time starter. When Joey Bart came up for the Giants last year, everybody was a buzz because he was the heir to Buster Posey. With Posey opting out, everybody thought that Joey Bart would automatically step in and change from being the catcher of the future to the catcher of the present. Well, Joey Bart was not that impressive offensively in 2020. He had 233 with a 288 on base, didn't homer in 103 at bats, and only drove in seven runs. He also struck out 41 times in 103 at-bats. That is a strikeout rate of over 40%. Joey Bart at this point, offensively, is not really ready to be a big league catcher. So the Giants figure, don't rush him anymore, have him be a full-time catcher in AAA, and then bring him up when he's ready. The Giants will move on from Buster Posey once his contract expires. Nobody is going to acquire a Buster Posey making $22 million a year who is not going to hit more than 10 homers in a year and is really limited with what he can do offensively. Buster Posey is not really a movable piece. And I was talking about this the other day with my buddy John Curley, who is the producer on 95.7 The Game's The Morning Roast. Listen to it 6 to 10 a.m. Pacific time every day with Kate Scott, Bonte Hill, and Joe Shasky. The Giants have four of their five most expensive players having 10-5 rights. 10-5 rights are 10 years in the big leagues and five years with the same team. Any player that holds 10-5 rights can veto any trade. So the Giants have, in Johnny Cueto, Buster Posey, Brandon Belt, and Brandon Crawford, four guys 
that can veto any trade that they want. Now, if the Giants are not competitive, they probably will accept any trade. My whole point being, the Giants aren't moving Buster Posey, and Joey Bart is not ready to be the big league catcher, which is why, welcome to San Francisco, Kirk Casale. The Dodgers are bringing back Blake Trinan on a two-year deal. It's worth $17.5 million and an $8 million club option for the 2023 season. Blake Trinan had a phenomenal 2018 with the Oakland A's, having a .780 RA in 80 and a third innings. After a very poor 2019, Trinan went to the Dodgers in 2020 and had a bounce-back year. Granted, only 25 and two-thirds innings, but he had a 3.86 ERA, a 3-3 record, 22 strikeouts to eight walks. The Dodgers are a team that can throw around money like nobody's business. I don't think that $17.5 million over two years is a very good deal for somebody that is a mediocre reliever at this point in his career at best. You look at the statistics from Trinan, and they fall off after 2018. A 3.86 ERA over 25 and two-thirds innings is too small a sample size. Blake Trinan had a 4.91 ERA in 2019 over 58 and two-thirds innings. He had an amazing year in 2018, but he struggled mightily with Washington in 2017 to where he was a throw-in piece in the Sean Doolittle trade that sent Doolittle from Oakland to the Nationals. I don't understand why the Dodgers felt like they needed to pay Blake Trinan this kind of money, but hey, maybe if Kenley Jansen is done, and by done I mean no longer the effective closer that he once was, if Trinan can find what he was in Oakland in 2018, then this looks like a pretty good value for somebody that would be your closer. And I am convinced that Blake Trinan more than likely is the Dodgers' closer if Kenley Jansen proves that he can't do the job anymore. So at this dollar figure for a setup man that's past his prime, I don't like it. But if you give him this money and he's going to be your closer and he's effective, it ends up being a good deal. The Dodgers really don't care one way or another. They've got more money than anybody else to spend. So they figure keep him happy, keep the continuity together, and bring him back for another couple years, see what he does. Blake Trinan is 32 years of age. I think by the time his contract expires at age 34, you'll have a better understanding upon whether or not he is still a capable big league reliever. One significant minor league contract to note, Sandy Leone signed a minor league contract with the Miami Marlins with an invite to big league spring training. Sandy Leone was on the 2018 Boston Red Sox as one of their two catchers. In 89 games that year, he hit 177 with five homers and 22 runs batted in. This season with Cleveland, he hit 136 in 25 games, two bombs, four stakes, and on base of 296. It is what it is. He's a backup catcher. Maybe he makes the big league roster. That's really all we have to say on Sandy Leone. The only reason I passed it along is that he played for a big league champion in 2018. That alone, to me, is significant enough to make our news. 
And one more piece of contract news. Former Giant Andrew Suarez, who was a second-round pick back in 2015 out of the University of Miami, is signing a $600,000 guaranteed contract with the LG Twins of the KBO. To me, you're going to see a lot of guys that are fringe major leaguers that are going to start to take guaranteed contracts overseas. Simply because the way that the pandemic was handled in the United States and the way that Major League Baseball owners are acting, they're saving as much money as humanly possible. They don't want to dole out contracts to guys that they don't see as being essential to their operation. My personal opinion doesn't make it right. So when somebody that was as heralded coming out of the draft as Andrew Suarez, who in my opinion honestly was never given a fair shake by the Giants, when somebody like that goes overseas, to me it's a sign of things to come. The Omuri Giants of the Japanese League ended up signing Eric Thames, who had formerly played in the KBO prior to returning to the Brewers in 2017. This is something that's going to continue to happen. And I'm just curious to see when we get to this time in February what the state of our free agent market is going to be. Because it's January 6th, and the free agent market is moving as slow as it did two years ago, if not slower. Our final story of the Daily Grounds is in regards to Bianca Smith, who was hired to be a minor league coach by the Red Sox on Monday. Bianca Smith becomes the first African-American woman to ever coach in professional baseball. She will be a development coach based out of the team's spring training facility in Fort Myers, Florida. Smith said, quote, The opportunity is amazing. I'm still wrapping my head around it. I probably won't really have it sink in until I'm actually there. She previously worked as the director of baseball operations at Case Western Reserve University from 2013 to 2017 and as an assistant coach at the University of Dallas in 2018. She also had internships with the Texas Rangers and the Cincinnati Reds in their baseball operations department. She most recently was the assistant coach and hitting coordinator at Carroll University in Wisconsin. This is just awesome. Like, this is awesome. An African-American woman is going to be a professional coach. A year after the San Francisco Giants hired Alyssa Nacken to be the first ever female coach in all of Major League Baseball. I love it. I love it. The game is changing. It's changing for the better. Get on board, everybody. There are going to be more people like Bianca Smith that are going to be a part of this game now and for years to come. So the main topic of today's episode, and I'm not necessarily sure how long this is going to go, is that it's become pretty clear in my mind that we are not going to have anybody elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame that's not on the Veterans Committee this year. Right now, Ryan Thibodeau, who is at Not Mr. Tibbs on Twitter, he is the official, unofficial Baseball Hall of Fame vote tracker. He basically aggregates all of the public Hall of Fame ballots and puts them into a tracker. From his data, you know how many ballots have been revealed, what year each player is in terms of their eligibility, how many ballots are still outstanding, and what ballots are anonymous, and other data of the sort. And you can go back. He's built out an Excel sheet that allows you to go back to 2010 
That's when he first started doing it. Oh, wait a minute. You can go back to 2009. All right, maybe I'm not scrolling this correctly, but let me see. Yep, you can go back to 2009 for all this data, which I think is pretty darn cool. The reason why I wanted to do this show today is that there have been a significant amount of ballots that have been revealed to where guys have voted for no players. Now, let me preface this by saying that there are players that are eligible on the ballot that more than likely should have gotten in a long time ago, if not for the steroid scandal. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. You can throw Sammy Sosa and Gary Sheffield in there as well, but to me, I think that these guys should automatically be in the Hall of Fame, and here's why. David Ortiz is as connected to steroids as any of these other guys. And David Ortiz, because he was popular, because people liked him, is going to end up getting into the Hall of Fame on the first ballot next year because everybody loves Big Poppy. You know, David Ortiz never hit above 20 homers in his first five seasons in the big leagues, all of the Minnesota Twins, and then he never hit less than 30 in each of his next six years, all with the Boston Red Sox. He gets connected to the Mitchell Report. No surprise, David Ortiz's statistics had a very abnormal jump from when he was cut by the Twins to when he was signed by the Red Sox. And everybody thought, oh, Big Poppy, great comeback story, a guy reinventing himself. Look, if you're connected to the Mitchell Report and you look at those statistics, and to me it's pretty clear that David Ortiz had some use of performance-enhancing drugs. And if you hold Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens to that standard, why are you not going to hold David Ortiz to that standard? Or vice versa, if you allow David Ortiz in, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens should be in automatically. Yeah, Barry Bonds was an a-hole. So was Roger Clemens. But we don't put guys in based on whether or not they were a-holes or nice guys. You put them in based on their performance. Now, Omar Vizquel is somebody that was rumored to have had a domestic violence incident with his wife. And I think that a lot of voters will automatically disqualify him because of domestic violence. And I agree. I don't think anybody that is outstanding and is seen as a domestic abuser should be put in the Hall of Fame. Steroids and domestic violence are not on the same level. They aren't. And anybody that makes the argument that they should be, you have some seriously messed up priorities. But looking at this year's Hall of Fame ballot and looking at how votes have come in thus far, there's a good chance that we don't see a single Hall of Famer this year. Now, the guy that I think is the favorite to get in, if anybody gets in, is Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling is a very controversial figure, and Kurt Schilling is in his ninth year on the ballot, same as Barry Bonds, same as Roger Clemens. But is Curt Schilling actually a Hall of Famer? Curt Schilling has said some very inflammatory things. He's very controversial politically, and somebody that is just, quite frankly, not very well liked. Curt Schilling is viewed as an a-hole. But if you look at Curt Schilling's statistics, he had some very good years. He finished in the top three of the Cy Young voting three times. He finished second three times. Two times with Arizona, one time with Boston. 2001, finished second. 
22 wins, 6 losses, a 2980 ERA, led the league with 256 and two-thirds innings pitched, and he also had 293 strikeouts. Next year, 23 wins, 259 innings, 323 ERA, 316 strikeouts, and then in 2004, he had 21 wins, a 326 ERA, 226 and two-thirds innings, and he had 203 strikeouts. In his career, Kurt Schilling won 216 games, had a career ERA of 3.46. He was a six-time All-Star, a three-time World Series champion, and a World Series MVP. The back end of his career was Hall of Fame caliber. Other than the three years that I listed, Schilling never won more than 17 games in a year. He won 17 in 1997 with the Phillies when he had a 2.97 ERA. And by the way, he only had a sub-3 ERA four times. Four times as a starter, I should say, He had it five times in 1990. He was a reliever with the Baltimore Orioles. I don't think that Kurt Schilling is a Hall of Famer. I think he is in, as a lot of my friends would say, the Hall of Very, Very Good. But as it stands right now, he has 72.6% of the known ballots per Ryan Thibodeau's Hall of Fame tracker. That's 31% of the ballots known and he has 72.6% of votes on all of those ballots. At that pace, and knowing that there are a lot of ballots out there that won't put him on there, I don't think he gets in. Even more discouraging, Todd Helton is currently at 54.8%. Todd Helton is going to have his Hall of Fame case held against him because he played his entire career with the Colorado Rockies which I don't think is fair at all. It's not your fault that you play in a ballpark that is unfair to pitchers, that gives hitters an advantage. Todd Helton, in seven years in the major leagues, was a career 316 hitter with a 414 on base percentage. He had years from 2000 to 2007. Every year from 2000 to 2007, he had an on base of over 400. He had a career on base of 414. That's Hall of Fame worthy. Todd Helton was hitting for a high average even after he stopped hitting homers. In 2011, he hit 302 in 124 games, and he hit only 14 homers. Say what you want about the home runs. If you hit for a high average and you have a high on base percentage, you should be a Hall of Famer. Todd Helton from 2000 to 2004 never hit below 325. Todd Helton from 1998 until 2007 never hit below 300. That's 10 years in the big leagues. He never hit below 300. And by the way, in that 10-year stretch, he never played fewer than 144 games. So you have a guy that has hit for a high average over a 10-year stretch, had a high on-base percentage over a 10-year stretch, and by the way, was as durable as all get out. Now his final six years, he only played more than 125 games once. That was 2009. But over a 17-year career in which he had over 2,500 hits, to me, 
He had Hall of Fame-style numbers in the first 10 years of his career. And by the way, not complete first 10 years of his career. That's 10 and change because he played 35 games in 1997. Todd Helton, to me, is a Hall of Famer. So why is he only getting 54% of the outstanding vote? It makes absolutely no sense to me. You can hold Coors Field against him for the homers, but look, if you put everybody in that environment, they all would have better numbers. It's all relative. Don't hold that against Todd Helton because he played in a ballpark that gave hitters an advantage. I don't care that he played in Coors Field. You don't have an on-base of over 460 in a single season just by playing in a certain ballpark. You play half your games at home. You play half your games in other ballparks. His year in 2000, where he had a 463 on-base percentage, hit 372, had 147 RBI, and that only got him fifth in the MVP voting, that, to me, is an absolute shame. And I look at this tracker, and I look at the ballots that are known, and I look at how Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are trending, and I just don't see it happening. I don't see either of those two guys getting in. I don't see anybody getting in. Somebody else, by the way, the only other player so far that's getting above 65% is Scott Rowland. Scott Rowland had a good career. He hit 281 in a career that spanned 17 years. He had 316 homers. That's the Hall of Very Good. That's not the Hall of Fame. Because I compare him to Paul Konerko, who was jettisoned from the ballot after one year. Paul Konerko hit a career 279 with 439 homers over 18 years. Scott Rowland getting 65% of the vote with his numbers at 281 and 316 homers. And Paul Konerko getting jettisoned after one year hitting 439 homers and batting two percentage points lower than Scott frickin' Rowland? I hate the Hall of Fame process because it is the ultimate display of subjectivity. If a Hall of Fame voter doesn't like the way that a guy acted around him or the way that somebody decided that they were going to conduct themselves in a post-game interview, they'll hold that against them. The fact that people have submitted a Hall of Fame ballot with zero votes on it to me is ridiculous because there are Hall of Famers on this ballot. By the numbers of their numbers versus other guys who are in the Hall of Fame, there are Hall of Famers on this ballot. And here is my ultimate comparison point. Let me introduce you to Phil Rizzuto. Phil Rizzuto is a famous New York Yankees broadcaster. Phil Rizzuto was also voted into the Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee in 1994. Phil Rizzuto over his 13 years in the big leagues, hit 273. That's right, 273. Phil Rizzuto had 1,588 career hits. How many MVPs did he win? He won one, and he had a very good 1950 season where he hit 324, a 418 on base, seven homers, 66 RBI. He had 735 plate appearances that year. The year before, he finished second in the MVP by hitting 275. Can somebody explain to me 
why somebody hitting 275 with five homers and 65 RBI deserves to be second in the MVP voting. People love Phil Rizzuto, and for that reason, he's in the Hall of Fame because these are not Hall of Fame numbers. By what we determine to be a Hall of Fame player, these are not Hall of Fame numbers. So if Phil Rizzuto is in the Hall of Fame, there's no reason why a Todd Helton or a Paul Konerko shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame either. Now, Paul Konerko, his chance is done because of the rules of the Baseball Hall of Fame voting. If you get less than 5% of the vote on your first ballot, you're gone. And that's what happened to Paul Konerko. And I think it is absolutely shameful that that did happen. Nothing we can do about it now. And if Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens do not get voted in this cycle, then that means they have one cycle left to get voted into the Hall of Fame by the Baseball Writers Association of America. And who knows if either of them will ever get in on a Veterans Committee ballot. I personally don't think so. But that's something that will be decided years from now if they don't get in. The subjectivity of Baseball Hall of Fame voters to me is mind-boggling. It is absolutely frustrating to the core, and I cannot stand it. I can't stand it because they don't look at these things objectively. Yes, I know, the opposite of subjectivity is objectivity. But if you can't look at this stuff objectively, you shouldn't have a vote. There was a guy that lost his Hall of Fame vote this year. I'll find the story and bring it up on our next episode. But he lost his Hall of Fame vote because he didn't vote for Mariano Rivera. He didn't want him to be a unanimous Hall of Famer. And that's the tomfoolery that you will see by some of the baseball writers. That they don't vote for guys out of spite or for some weird reason like they don't want a player to be a unanimous Hall of Famer. It makes absolutely no sense to me. And personally, I think there needs to be a referendum on the Hall of Fame voting process. It is long overdue for this process to be outright changed. And for me, if Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens don't get into the Hall of Fame and David Ortiz does, then it is justification to blow the whole system up. Because you're holding one guy to one standard and other two guys to another standard. And to me... That is the dictionary definition of subjectivity instead of objectivity. And the goal is to put in the best players, not the players that you feel the best about. And on that note, we are going to say goodbye here on MLB Morning Coffee, a production of the Ocean Avenue Studios. Remember, write a review for us, leave a rating, subscribe to the show. I'm hoping that we boost our subscriptions through the roof in the year 2021. A happy new year to you and yours. Please continue to be safe, wear a mask, socially distance, and hopefully, if we do the right things as a society, we'll have a full baseball season this upcoming year and maybe we'll actually be allowed to go to the stadium and watch. Have a great day, everybody. I'll talk to you soon.